So we're going to take a quick break of flow from marriage, and we're going to back up the train because the decision to get married is the most important decision that anybody can make outside of putting their faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work for them to get them to heaven, right? This is the most important decision. And, and it's, um, as the video said, and I think all of us can, can understand and agree, and those of us that are married, aren't we like thanking the Lord we're not in the dating scene anymore? That is a hallelujah chorus, and I am so glad um, that we're through that, but some of us aren't in this room. And so we want to kind of look at what the Bible says about spouse hunting. You know, dating is difficult as revealed by some of these breakup photos that uh, float around on the internet. If you can imagine somebody uh, buying their boyfriend or girlfriend a pizza and then writing, I'm breaking up with you inside the pizza box and taking it that way. Um, This is a little funny. I think we need to break up. Oh, your autocorrect is messing up again. No, I'm being serious and it's doing it again. No, it's over. Babe, you need to get a new phone. It's 11-11, make a wish. Okay, what'd you wish for? For you and me to grow up and get married and stay together forever. What'd you wish for? To find a way to break up with you before it got too serious. Are you serious? And then what about this one? Hey, I have something to tell you, or I have to tell you something. Hey, I do too. Okay, let's say it at the same time. Okay, one, two, three. Can we break up and will you marry me? Yeah, wow, that one hit it close to home, right? That's, that's tough. <clears throat> Dating is difficult for, for all of these reasons. It's, especially if you come to it with a different mindset uh, than what the Lord would, would have you come to it. And so this morning, as, as we set the stage for the study this morning, I want to say, um, really just kind of share a couple of principles. If you're single here this morning, not married, <clears throat> I want you to consider one Principle, and, and this is the, I guess, disclaimers that we're going to function on as we, we teach on this concept of spouse hunting in the next two weeks. You, you're looking for a believer in Jesus Christ. That's principle number one. That, that should be ground level, no exceptions made. And I'll talk about why that's the case here in a second. That's the first thing you're looking for. And we're not just doing it because mom and dad have always told you that, or the pastor's always told you that, or somebody that's older in your life has always told you that. In fact, I know people that just to kind of check that box off, they'll just, as they're dating someone, they'll say, hey, do you believe in God? And they'll say yes. And they'll say, all right, man, they're a Christian. (laughs) They're a Christian. I can date them still. No, it's not do you believe in God. It's are you trusting or have you trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Is that what you're basing your eternity on is the finished work that he accomplished 2,000 years ago? This has got to be foundational for anybody that's spouse hunting. In fact, what it does is it does a really good job of narrowing the choices, honestly. It makes knowing God's will a little bit easier because if this person's not saved, great, they're not a candidate to marry. They're not a candidate even to date at that point. So that's first principle. Now, that's a, that's a great principle, but it's not as high a standard as we want to encourage. Because the second principle says this. You're actually looking for somebody that's walking with the Lord. Somebody that's pursuing the Lord. Somebody that wants to have a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. Not somebody that just generically talks about God once in a while, that generically goes to church once in a while, that generically hits up a Bible once in a while, that sleeps with the Bible next to their bed but never opens it, 
right? We're not, we're talking about somebody that's engaged mentally and spiritually on a daily basis with Jesus Christ. And you don't want to manufacture that in somebody. Sometimes people start dating and then this person over here knows that if I'm going to keep this person interested, I better act like I'm really into spiritual things. And they go through this action. No, you can, you can see what's really going on. By the way, if you're not committed to these two principles, let me tell you what you're saying without saying it. You're, you, this is what you're saying. You're saying, I'm okay with somebody who will consistently walk according to the flesh and who will be governed by their sin nature. In fact, I sign up to be with somebody who will be governed by a self-centered sin nature 100% of the time or the majority of the time. And you know what? Sign me up. I'll take that. And my question for you is this, have you seen the works of the flesh listed in Galatians 5? Let's turn there really quickly. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. Because I want us to see what we're signing up for if this is what, how we're going to approach marriage. Okay? Because you know what? There's something more important in a spouse than how good they look in a pair of jeans. There's something more important than looking at the spouse is how good she looks in a, in a bathing suit, how pretty her eyes are, how pretty his smile is, how big his muscles are. There's something more important than all of that. Now, when you get the whole package, you're blessed indeed, right? But, but there's something more than that. Look at the, the works of the flesh as listed in Galatians 5.19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Which means that's not even a comprehensive list of how the sin nature manifests itself. Now, you're telling me as you sit there this morning that you would sign up to marry somebody that was governed by that 100% of the time or 95% of the time? What you're signing up for when you do that is, is what we would say hell on earth. That, that right there describes hell on earth. And if you know of any marriages that are in that state, you have seen hell on earth. You have seen it with your own eyes. And is that what we want to sign up for, those of you that are single, because they look good in a pair of jeans? Trust me, one day they might not look good in a pair of jeans, and you still get this whole package that we read about. And here's the other thing you got to understand. The sin nature doesn't pump its brakes just because you're in marriage. In fact, sometimes it carries it even further than what they would do in public spheres. That alone should frighten you. That alone is hell on earth. And so not only do you want to find somebody that's saved and pursuing the Lord, you want to be that person as well for the other person. Because there's nothing more disheartening in the world than to see your own sin nature lash out at the person that you committed to be faithful to in front of witnesses on your wedding day and not be able to control your anger, not be able to control your words, to cause damage and hurt at such levels that they can't even trust you or they can't even go on with you anymore. They can't even be in the same room with you anymore. That's devastating. And see, that's what being governed by the sin nature will do. It always produces death. 
So that's just some intro comments. That's our, our baseline that we're working with when we talk about spouse hunting. But turn with me to 1 Corinthians 7 because there's even another question that we need to answer this morning before we get into looking for a spouse. Many times in, in churches, young people especially feel pressured to get married. We, they feel pressured that they've got to get married to have some kind of value in the local church, in life in general, and we push marriage. And rightfully so, marriage is a great thing. Marriage is a great thing. But we're going to look at this morning to introduce this, this topic of spouse hunting is in 1 Corinthians 7. And, and we're going to discuss not when and how, but even the baseline question, should you get married? Should you get married? Do you know that, that God has gifted some believers with singleness for their lives? And he's gifted some with marriage. But the point is this, we can't cram everything into a round hole. We can't cram a square peg into a round hole. We can't just assume everybody, it's God's will for everybody to get married. And you know, that takes a lot of pressure off of singles. You know, I know people who are now in their 40s who have finally realized, you know what, I've got the gift of singleness and I'm okay with that. But they felt like a second class citizen for the last 25 years in churches because they didn't have a spouse. Oh, who are you dating? And you know, it just comes with subtle comments. Oh, who are you dating? Oh, I saw you talk to that girl. Are you, you like her? You know, hey, I got someone to set you up with. No. The, the backup question is, should you even be married? Do you have the gift of singleness? That's one thing to consider if you're single and not married. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. <clears throat> We're going to pick up in verse 7. I had Paul, or Paul, I had Mark, Paul wrote Corinthians, Mark read it earlier. I had Mark read it, what Paul wrote, and um, but we're going to jump down to verse 7. He says, for I wish that all men uh, were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. And you know, when Paul says, I wish that all men were like myself, he uses this word wish, and it just means his will, his volition, his desire. This is what he would hope. Um, and, and one of the things that I think we need to understand um, is that if Paul got his wish, all Christians would remain single. That's, that's Paul's wish. Now, he's not communicating God's will. It, we're going to see that. But we're going to see that Paul, if he got his wish, he would want all Christians uh, to stay single. In fact, he says that in verse 6. He says, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not commanding this. And, and so, so many people could just read a verse here and there and go, oh, he wants everybody to stay single. It's not what he's saying at all. He's just saying, if I had a, the, my way about it, this is how it would work. Um, but you know what? God's, God's got a different plan. And, and God's plan, as we read on uh, in this passage, is that God uh, has given each one his own gift, one in this way, another in that. And so even though Paul has a certain way that he would go about it, God's got a different plan. And part of that plan involves marriage. But part of that plan also involves singleness for some. And this is what we've got to understand as Paul is, is writing here to the Corinthian believers. Now, they were going through some kind of distress, the text tells us. But we think that probably has to do with just them feeling like they're living in the end times. And it was a direct answer. In fact, you go back up to verse one. He says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So Paul is addressing a direct question that this church had, um, but this is how he ha handles this. And so when we, when we take the implications of the context, Paul is saying this, there's two gifts here that God gives to every believer, marriage, married life, 
and single life. Those are the two gifts. And the question becomes, how do you know um, what gift is yours, right? That's kind of where, where it really boils down to. But understand this, notice where the gifting comes from. Go back up into the verse. Each one has his own gift from where? From God. That, mean, that means God gives these gifts, singleness, married life. God is the one who determines who gets these. God is the one who knows exactly if you are a single person here today, God knows exactly what he's given to you. He knows exactly what he wants to accomplish in and through your life. And see, if, if we take that big picture perspective as a young person, you know what we can say? I can trust the Lord. And that's where we want you to go with that. I want you to know that God's got this all put together for you. <laughs> Nothing's going to take God by surprise. If he wants you to marry somebody in Hong Kong, he's going to arrange for you to meet that person in Hong Kong, here, wherever, right? God can figure all those dynamics out. You don't have to stress or be anxious about it. God is, is in control and he knows exactly what he wants to do. And Jesus says back in the gospels, does not the father know how to give perfect gifts? I mean, how many of you today, I mean, well, I won't have you raise your hand, but how many of you today realized that you married up? Like you're just being honest with yourself. Yeah, thank you. I see some hands. All right, me too. She's a gift. Carrie's a gift to me. You, and you guys understand that about your spouse. They're, this is a gift. I, in fact, I didn't even know what I always never knew that I needed or wanted many times, right? And so God knows how to do those kind of things. We gotta just simply trust if you're single here today, understand that God knows what you need and you can trust him. You can take him by the hand and trust him. And so as we see, since this is true, you know, being married or single has no bearing or impact on your worth or value as a human being or your worth and value in the local church. We've got to understand that. We've got to encourage those that are single in this way. In fact, God's got value and intrinsic worth for every believer, regardless of their marital status. So it's not who and when are you getting married? Oh, who and when are you interested in? It's maybe the first question is, should you get married? Are you gifted with singleness? Are you gifted with married life? Where, where are you at? What's in your mind? What's your thinking? So I think as a, as, a, as a church and as believers, we've got to recognize that holding marriage up as the end-all, be-all, the final destination, got to get there to be anything in the Christian life, it, it may not be for every single person in this body. We've got to understand that. We've got to be okay with that. We've got to recognize that that's a biblical concept that we're talking about. But I think it begs the question, how do you know which one you are? How do you know which gift you've received? Which gift you've been given? How do you know? Well, Paul goes on to say in verses 8 and 9 this. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But notice this contrast. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So again, he's... Paul expresses his wish. He keeps saying, hey, if I had it my way, everybody would be single. Um, but he gives the caveat to his personal desire. And here it is. He says, because if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. And this is a very important concept to look at. Because the way this has been used and abused 
throughout the church has been kind of, I think, unfortunate because it, it, many times we, we deviate from the context here, and I think the context is very important. So let's just talk about this phrase, exercise self-control. Um, it translates one Greek word meaning to be temperate or to have complete control over one's emotions, desires, and actions. It means you're not out of control, right? You're in control of your emotions, your desires, your actions. And you know, Paul is clearly talking here because of what he goes on to say in verse 9. He's talking about self-control in the area of sexual intimacy. Very, in fact, very important function in a marriage, right? One of, one of God's original designs for marriage was sexual intimacy. But Paul goes here and, and, and we get this because he describes it in the next phrase. He says, it's better to marry than this, uh, to satisfy that desire than to burn with passion. And, and if one thing we know about the Corinthian church, but it's not just true of them, but one thing we know about Corinth was what? They were very immoral. Sexual immorality was rampant in that city, just to, from a culture perspective. It was, it was off the charts. But what's interesting about the way that he negates this word, and this is something to, to consider, he uses a, a word, uh, there's a couple of negations you can use in the Greek, but he uses the, the, the negation ooh, O-U, you can see it up there in the blue, um, which means it's a full and objective negation. And here's the key, it's independent of other circumstances. So what do we mean by that? Well, he's not necessarily saying that they cannot maintain self-control because they're animals, right? That's how some people will interpret this. Oh, men are just animals. Girls are getting that way too. Just let them get married because they can't control themselves anyways. And and better they get married than they burn, right? And some people even say that burn. Anyways, that's a whole other thing. All right, so... um, but they'll say they're animals, right? They'll say, oh, well, it's because they lived in a corrupt culture in Corinth and they just couldn't control themselves. Culture was just beaten down on too hard. And they just couldn't keep their clothes on, right? It, just, it was impossible for them, so they should just get married. Or as some people say, oh, it's just what young women, young men do. You know, it's just kind of, well, you know, close my eyes. That's just what happens, right? But, but the, the negation here doesn't allow for that. It doesn't, it, it's not talking about self-control based on all these external circumstantial stuff coming to them. I think in context, what it's referring to is self-control referring to the gifting that God has given each individual believer. And what do I mean by that? Well, what seems to be implied is that due to God's gifting of singleness or marriage, some believers are wired for marriage. And you know what? When you're married, you need sexual intimacy. That's going to be a strong desire. And it's not that when you have to gift the singlehood, maybe that desire goes away. But the point is this, is that if you are wired from marriage, then you are wired to enjoy the benefits that come from sexual intimacy within a marriage relationship. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying they can't control themselves, but he's saying because of the gifting they possess, they, they need to pursue marriage because that's how God has wired and gifted them to enjoy life. And that's really the goal. Not, am I out of control? Not, I can't keep my clothes on concept, right? That's not, I don't believe what he's talking about. So to try to take a believer who's been gifted marriage by the Lord and to force them to remain single 
would expose them, I think, to a, a, an unnatural predicament and an unnecessary temptation to sin. And I think this is what Paul is addressing here in this passage. So one of the things that we see is, is and now we want to look at, why did Paul have a preference, right? He's, he's really clear to state his preference for singlehood. In fact, uh, I, I believe that he's got a reason for that. And we find that in verse 35. And um, one of the reasons that I think we're going to see is that he's got uh, a reason I think that's pure and simple. And that's this. If you remain single, your mind can remain completely dedicated to, to serving the Lord. You don't have any earthly distractions. That's the deal. That's his reasoning. Let's read verses 32 to 35 again, and then we'll pick back up in verse 35. <clears throat> but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, but she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper that you may serve the Lord without distraction. We're going to look at that phrase, serve the Lord. It's interesting phrase. Only time it's used in the Bible is this Greek word, euprosidros, and it means to sit close by. It, it communicates the idea of being a constant attendant to give continual devotion as a servant. And the emphasis is that you are, you are close by, seated by, and you remain in that position to always attend to the Lord and to his interests. And the other thing that we're going to look at is this phrase, without distraction. And he says that this is good for singles because they can serve the Lord, remain at his attention, be available to him, and they can do it without distraction. And what was the distraction? What would distract from this type of unfettered devotion and attention to the Lord? Well, our context tells us what it is. It's your spouse. And, you know, when you, when you were dating, those of us that are married, and you say, wow, you, your beauty distracts me. You didn't know you were being biblical. Yeah, they are distracting. <laughs> but not just their beauty, right? But, but, but what if I've got, what if I go home and I've got a commitment to my wife and, and I have a, an opportunity for ministry outside of my home? Well, now guess what? My primary ministry is to my wife. And I'm going to have to let that other ministry go until I can get to it. And see, this is what we're talking about. There's a, there's a, a distraction, but it's okay. It's an okay distraction. Um, it's not sinful if you're gifted with marriage because now God has not only gifted you with a ministry to others, but now he's gifted you with a ministry to your spouse and then any other potential children that come from that union, you got a ministry to them too. And see, this is okay. This is an okay distraction. Um, making lots of money, not an okay distraction, but we get distracted by that. Having a bigger house, not an okay distraction. We get distracted by that. Uh, having my downtime, having my free time, having my, my ability to go do this and go do that, probably not the type of distraction he's talking about here. But being devoted to your spouse and understand that she or he is a primary ministry for you above all other ministries, yes, be distracted for that. That's okay. That's a good, that's a good distraction. But you know what? When you're single, you don't have that distraction. You don't have that distraction. 
That's, that's not a distraction that's involved in single life. Now, this would not be okay for those who are gifted with singleness, and, and God's got another plan in mind for them. And this is why I believe Paul is saying, as he looks out on the horizon of the, the world needing the gospel, he says, you know what? I hope more of you stay single because then you can be fully devoted to the Lord and we can go get this great commission thing accomplished, right? There's not as much need or distraction. You know, uh, men in those days, it was very hard for them to leave their families because they needed protection from, from evil elements and, and they needed to be provided for. So they couldn't just leave and disappear for three years on a mission trip and leave their families behind. And so there were certain things like that. And I think that's what Paul is talking about. And so just in general, as we come out of that section, it's not when and how, assuming that you are gifted with married life, Maybe you're gifted with singleness, and that's something just to consider as you're attempting to understand the will of God for your life, those of you who are here this, this morning and, and unmarried. And so now I want to move on to some do's and don'ts of, of spouse hunting. We're going to try to stay, um, we'll get a little specific, but we're going to try to stay fairly generic this morning and get into some specific qualities um, next week. But let's look at the do's first. And this has got to be number one. Uh, We talked about, are they a believer? Okay, we're assuming that that's, everybody understands that's a red flag and and not to be pursued past. If they're not a believer, you just kind of back off and you can befriend them, but but not in a a pursuit way. And then understanding that when you date, you're, you're looking to find a mate. You're not just dating to date. Okay, that's, there's a very intentional there's a very intentional mindset that goes into dating. And I think the first question is, are they pursuing the Lord? And, you know, one of the things that, that you can't use as a, as, an, um, as a consistent guide is if they're telling you they're pursuing the Lord. Okay? <laughs> I mean, anyone will say that if they think they can connect with you. They'll tell you whatever they want to hear, right? Guy or girl. A lot of times they try to figure out what you like and it's, oh yeah, I'm into that too. You know, oh yeah, I'm into skydiving too. And, oh, well, let's go skydiving. Oh, I think I'm going to be sick that day. I don't know if I'm going to do that, right? We tell them anything they want to hear. Uh, many people do that in dating. So you can't just say, oh yeah, they said they're pursuing the Lord. They said that they're walking with God. And, and so, but I mean, that's a good start, right? If at least if they verbalize that, that that's an interest, it's a good start. But you know, one of the things that's so interesting, you go to the book of Proverbs, and I'm going to be kind of jumping into, into Proverbs here a little bit. You can just turn with me and just let your Bible hang there. Um, it, that way you'd be a little bit closer when I, when I hit some of these verses. But one of the things you find in Proverbs is this general principle, Proverbs 1-7, kind of the theme of the book. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And then hold your finger there and go back to the last chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, 30. Proverbs 31, 30, speaking of a woman and a wife, it says, charm is deceitful, beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And, and you know, this, that phrase, fear of the Lord, it's a fascinating phrase when you kind of sit out because it doesn't necessarily mean that you're afraid of the Lord, like fearful, terrified. But the idea is that you've got awe and reverence for him. And the way that that's going to play out is, is this is going to be somebody's central focus that they're interested in what the Lord's interested in. 
They, they place a high value on what the Lord places a high value on. These are the kind of things that you're looking for uh, in a spouse. You, you want to see somebody that, that may be thinking a certain way, but when they're exposed to the word of God or exposed to sound Bible teaching, they begin to change their mind to align their thinking with what they understand the Lord to be communicating. And so again, how do you know? Lots of people say it. Well, here are some ways to notice it. Very practical. Again, I don't know if these are foolproof. And and by the way, if you're spouse hunting and you're looking for somebody that's spiritually mature, you're never going to get married, okay? So I'm not saying people have to be perfect, I'm not even saying they can, I'm telling you, if you're a 21, 22-year-old person in this room, this is not a criticizing comment for you, but I can guarantee that you're not spiritually mature because maturity takes long time of consistency walking by faith. And just quite frankly, just you haven't had enough time. I'm not even saying at 42, I've had enough time to be considered spiritually mature. But the point is this, we do want to be spiritual. We are looking for somebody that wants to be spiritual. When we talk about being spiritual, we're talking about having your sins, your known sins confessed, and you're walking in an active faith relationship in the Lord. Do you have somebody in front of you that looks like that? That's what you're looking for. They're not going to be perfect. They're going to lose their temper. They're going to not respond to trials well occasionally. But is their desire to walk with the Lord? That's what you're looking for. Here are some ways, some really practical ways to see this. If they're young enough to be in the home, do they listen to the instruction of their parents? And you say, oh, I don't even care about that. They're not going to be living with their parents. Here's why you should care. Here's why you should care. And if you are a young person living at home, take heed to this, please, because this is going to help you as you train yourself for marriage. Here's why you should care, because this is a clearly defined authority structure in your life. God has placed there for you. And I'm not saying your parents are perfect. I'm sure each one, each parent in here, if I asked them, they'd say, no, I'm not perfect. Here's why I've messed up. Here's why I've blown it. Here's why I could do better. Exactly. But the point is this, they are the authority structure that God has placed in their life. And if they're not even willing to listen to them, they're training themselves to be a rebel against any authority that comes into their life. That's not a good thing. That is not the type of spouse that you want to marry because that's the type of spouse that's not going to be able to hold a job. Because when boss man tells me something I don't like, well, I'm going to, you know, communicate something to him that I probably shouldn't and now I'm going to be out and I'm going to find another job. And when the government tries to do this or when the church leaders try to tell me this or any other authority that God has established in their life, they're always bucking against the authority. They're always rebelling. That is a person who's walking according to the flesh. And I'm just telling you, that's an indicator. Pay attention. Pay attention. Oh, yeah, I love Jesus. I walk with Jesus. Mom, get out of my room. My mom, you can't tell me to do that. You're not my boss. I'm 18. Yeah, you're 18 and you're still living at home. You're 22 and you're still living at home. You're still under their authority. So if you can't appreciate and respect God-given authority, you are training yourself to be a disaster and a train wreck in marriage. And you know what? When you see that in a prospective spouse, I'm just telling you, take note. Take note. That will transfer to you one day if you pursue that relationship and it remains unchecked. So that's one way. 
Do they value and seek to obtain wise counsel in decisions? Trust me on this statement. It's going to be short. Write it down if you're single. You need to find somebody who realizes that they don't know everything. As simple as that sounds, please take that to heart. It's, it's really cool because if, if, if they come in with bravado, oh, yeah, I know exactly what we need to do. We got to do this. We got to do this. Sometimes that's comforting. You're like, oh, wow, okay, I don't even have to make a decision. They got this under control. And I like that person. They're decisive. They're this and that. The problem is they don't know everything. And if they think they do, that's a dangerous person. So somebody that can just recognize, hey, maybe I don't know. Maybe I don't have all the facts. Maybe I shouldn't jump to conclusions. Maybe I shouldn't confront this person because I really don't know what's going on. Maybe I should approach it with humility and grace. Because guess what? If they do it to other people, who do you think might also receive that kind of mistreatment? Yeah, you. And I know right now they're enthralled with your eyes. They're enthralled with your smile. They're enthralled with everything about you. And I get it. You are too. But these are the kind of things that we want to notice. Do they seek, obtain, and obtain wise counsel in their decisions? Who are their friends? What are their friends like? If somebody says, oh, I'm pursuing Jesus Christ, I'm walking with the Lord, and they've got a group of friends that are all into really questionable activities, you need to question that. You need to take that into consideration. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. People who are into uh, sinful lifestyles generally don't like to hang around people that are into spiritual things. That's just the nature of how it works, okay? Usually those don't attract each other, at least a group of them, together. Are they a good friend to others? Very, very important. You know, you can learn a lot about somebody by the way they treat their so-called friends. Are they, do they abandon them? When times get tough, do they put on a big smile? Oh, I love your shoes. And then over here, they tell us, oh, did you see her ugly shoes? I'm saying, I'm just saying, if you notice that, that's not a good character quality. That's deceit. That's uh, very selfish, very focused on what other people think of them. And and guess what? It's going to transfer to you. (laughs) That's what you got to understand is the activities and the attitudes are going to transfer to you one day because the works of the flesh don't pump the brakes when you get married. It's the same sin nature. It's the same manifestation of the sin nature. And so we want to see, does it, are they walking with the Lord? And these are some of the ways to tell. Do they gossip? Do they tell everything about everybody that they know. They just, you know, verbally vomit every bit of information they ever take in on anybody. Guess what? They're going to gossip about you one day. They're going to be the wife that's down at coffee with five friends telling about how you are an awful husband, how you screw up everything, how you have this attitude, how you don't treat the kids right, how you kick the dog, how you do every, every one of your faults is going to come forth bearing If you marry a woman that gossips, men are the same way. Get at the coffee pot, start complaining about their wives. My wife does this. My wife doesn't do this. I can't, I can't, you know, you can't, you can't understand women. You know, you, you can't, you can never figure them out. I mean, they're, they're, they're crazy. They're psychic. I mean, you get all these kind of things. And all I'm saying is this, watch how they treat their friends. Watch how they talk about other people. That will transfer to you. 
These are all things. Are they walking by means of the Spirit? How can I see? How can I know? They can tell me they are, but if I see all these fleshly manifestations, then I know they're not. And then if I bring it to their attention and confront them, how do they respond? Well, that's kind of a, uh, another one here. But again, I, I mentioned this, submissive to authority figures, not just their parents, but others. You know, are they bucking every authority figure in every setting? You know, they go down to the DMV and, and they say, hey, you got all your paperwork, but you're missing one piece of paper. Do they say, oh, come on, just let me in. I'll bring that to you later. And are they bucking every authority everywhere you go? right? That's just something to kind of keep in mind. Here's what I was getting to. How will they take correction? You know, Proverbs is pretty straightforward on this, and I, and I love it when the Bible's just like raw and to the point, because Proverbs 12.1 says this, whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. How about that for dropping the mic? You hate correction, you're stupid. You hate correction, you're an idiot, okay? And all I'm saying is that if you're Looking at someone as a potential spouse and they can't take correction. Now, by the way, how many of us really take correction well? I mean, how many just sign up and be like, yeah, bring it on. I'll I'll rip my back. You can slap me on the back, whip me, you know, for correction. Nobody wants that. I get it. I get it. It's not comfortable. But do you understand the value of it? Maybe do they get angry at first and then later recover when they're actually thinking biblically and say, you know what? I appreciate what that person said to me because they actually love me. They actually care for me. They wouldn't have told me that if they didn't care for me. Is that how they respond to correction? Or is when somebody corrects them, are they public enemy, number one, for the rest of their lives? You know people like that? Anybody corrects them, they go in the naughty list, man. They go in file 13. They never come out. Like they never recover that relationship. And so how well do they take correction? Do they talk about or exhibit a desire to trust the Lord when things are not going well for them or for someone they know? Do they immediately begin to devise self-reliant strategies? You know, it's one thing to talk about trusting the Lord at a Bible study. It's one thing to talk about trusting the Lord uh, at church on Sunday, uh, on the phone with a Christian friend. But when something hits Wednesday morning, and it's just you and them talking, is their mind being drawn to trust the Lord? I'm not saying they react perfectly every time, but do they end up in a place where they say, you know what, I don't want to trust myself. I don't want to lean on my own understanding. I want to trust the Lord. I want to take him by the hand. Please pray for me that I'll do that. I don't want to to solve this on my own. I want to trust the Lord to solve it. Is that their heart and their mindset uh, behind what they do? Another way to put it is how do they handle trials? You know, we all need to grow in this area. But let me tell you this. Ask any married couple in this room. Marriage is about your success in marriage largely has to do is how are you two going to handle trials together? That is such a huge part of marriage. How are you going to handle trials together? You're going to just... uh, you know, fleshly vomit on each other as you sort through life and try to handle trials? Are you going to come together, trusting the Lord, encouraging one another to trust the Lord as you deal with these trials in your life? And see, so many times, uh, marriages, this is where they fall apart. We don't handle conflict well. We don't handle trials well. And as a result, we lash out to the person closest to us, which happens to be our spouse. They get the brunt of our fleshly anger 
and our carnality. And that's typically what happens. This is a great thing to observe. Are they gracious with others when others mistreat them or when others make a mistake? (laughs) Pay attention to this because you're going to make mistakes in marriage. And if that's your spouse and they don't treat people graciously that make mistakes, you're going to get that. You're going to get that same treatment. So these are the things that we want to keep in mind. A couple more. Second one, are they in debt? What's their money DNA? Just understand, this is important to understand before you get into marriage. Don't think you can marry somebody and change their money DNA. And you know what I mean by money DNA? Hey, we got 500 extra dollars this month. I say we put it on the mortgage. I say we put it in savings. And your spouse is like, I say we take the whole neighborhood out for ice cream. Like, let's just blow the 500. We've got it. Let's just, let's just enjoy it. Now, you have to accept that. You might be different. That's okay. But you need to know that going in and be ready to accept that. Don't think, well, once I get married, I'm going to change him. I'm going to change her. That, it just doesn't work that way. And you set yourself up for frustration. And then I kind of mentioned this, but realize that dating and mating are related. Uh, they're, not, they're not totally separate things. In fact, you, you date to find a mate. You don't just date. What you do is when you just date is actually help you practice for divorce. And it provides a training academy, if you will, for doing everything that's opposite of God's original design of marriage. Just a training academy. You're just graduating. Every, every partner that you date, you just graduate from class to class and get another three hours under your belt, your credit hours, to, to be a, a self-protector, to be completely hidden and disguised and covered up and not transparent. Uh, and, and you learn how to not be dependent on one another. You, you just train yourself to do that. And then you inevitably bring this into your marriage and see, that's why dating is, is needs to be more strategic. You know, if you're looking for something fun to do on a Friday night, you know, just come talk to me. There's, you know, there's Netflix, there's pizza, there's arcades. I mean, you don't have to date. It's my point. You're just looking for entertainment. Don't put, don't put dating as your entertainment venue because all you end up doing is training yourself poorly for marriage. And it just needs to be a little bit more thought through and strategic. Now, let's look at a couple of don'ts. Again, we're going to go through generically. And some of this we've already talked about. And so I'm going to kind of move through very quickly. But one of the things that you want not to do, Romans 12, 1 and 2, you don't want to let the culture conform you into its mold regarding relationships, dating, and true love. Do not listen to Hollywood actors and actresses talk about true love. They don't even have a clue. We can put videos together of when they were falling in love and when they get divorced, and you can tell they don't have a clue. And yet so many times that's where we look to, to define true love. We're watching too many Disney movies and all these Hallmark movies and all these kind of things. And it doesn't always look that way. And that's the point. There's a conformity. And just remember Romans 12, 1 and 2, both of those, conformity and transformation, are both passive things that happen to you. Conformity to the world is when you're conformed externally, doing what the world does, approaching how the world approaches, hopping on this dating website, going to this place to find a spouse. All of those are human reliance strategies, basically saying, if I don't get out there, the Lord can't bring this person to me. Or if I don't do this, I'm never going to find a spouse. And it's all about trusting in yourself. And that's what we want to avoid, avoid. And so this internal transformation is what we're looking for. And how does that happen? When we renew our mind by the word of God. 
You begin to buy into God's plan for you. You begin to buy into God's care for you and believe that he's got what's best for you designed if you'll simply trust him. You can relax in life. You can relax in hunting for a spouse knowing that God knows how to put this thing together for you. In fact, he's been doing it for many people for many years. And one of the other things I want to say as we move in this, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this because it's so popular. Just don't live together before you get married, okay? Please, please as a young person, understand this is how the world wants to conform you right now. There's a lot of worldly wisdom. Let me tell you how it goes. Um, we are in love with each other. We want to get married someday anyways. We feel like it would be wise and prudent to try it out first, just in case we're seeing it wrong now. And then if we need to call it off, it won't be a messy divorce, right? Worldly wisdom. That's all it is, worldly wisdom. In fact, what's really bad about this approach is it kind of views cohabiting as like taking a car for a test drive. I'm just going to test drive this relationship a little bit, see how this goes. And the problem is this, it's a great illustration if you're the driver, right? Because the driver just leaves the car back at the shop and says, nah, I don't want that car. It's really a bad analogy if you're the car. (laughs) It hurts if you're the car. The the car doesn't really make it out of that analogy too well. The driver does. But the problem is this, is that's exactly what cohabitation does. When you start to look at the stats, you know that as many as 70% of first marriages among women aged 18 to 35 are preceded by cohabitation, they think that number is going to jump over 80% soon based on the trends. Do you know that in 2016, the majority of Americans felt like this was a good idea? 65%. And you say, well, that hasn't infiltrated the church. You know, praise God, no. Here's the problem. Disturbing also in the study, 41% of quote-unquote practicing Christians also strongly agreed that cohabitation was a good idea. Now, it's because we're buying into that worldly wisdom. It makes sense, right? Let me try it out. If it doesn't work, then we don't have to get divorced. We can just kind of quietly go our ways. It just doesn't work that way. That's, that's the problem. And then what we see from secular social science, uh, it's, it's very clear. Cohabitation doesn't lead to better marriage rates. It leads to higher divorce rates. It does the exact opposite of what worldly wisdom says it would do. It actually harms you more. And and here's the reason. You're training yourself in cohabitation to have one foot in, one foot out every time. I remember reading an article about a couple and and the the guy is concerned. Their relationship was going fine. They were cohabiting. Everything was going well. But guess what? The lease on their apartment was coming up. And then they're like, ooh, do we stay together? I got to sign this lease. I'm locking myself in for another year. Do I keep one foot in? Do I keep one foot out? Should I really bring all my stuff into the house or should I have a store? And you see, there's, there's nothing even remotely close to God's original design for a couple in that situation. And it becomes this training ground. In fact, people with, co- people with cohabiting experience have a 50 to 80% higher likelihood of divorcing than married couples who've never cohabited. And you know what's really, really sad? This is so typical of the miscommunication involved. You know, women view cohabitation, ah, it's a step toward marriage. This guy's really serious about me. It's a step toward marriage. You know how guys view it? Ah, this is one more step to keep her off my back so I don't have to get married. You see, you see how hurtful and deceptive that can be? 
And so we never even want to get engaged in that. You know, God's view of marriage is really simple. You get married, then you become one flesh. Cohabitation says, ah, let's become one flesh and then maybe we'll get married. You see, it totally flips God's wisdom on its head and it's really tragic. You know, Hebrews 13 tells us that, that uh, marriage is honorable among all, including the Lord. Uh, the bed is undefiled, which means there's nothing wrong or polluted or sinful about sexual intimacy in a marriage. That's exactly where God designed it to be. But then it goes on to say, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In contrast to the purity and honor, honorable setup of marriage and marital intimacy, any sexual intimacy outside of the marriage relationship is defiled, sinful, and will face God's judgment. And I've had people tell me before, well, we're just living together. We're not actually um, being intimate with one another. And I go, sure. Yeah, that's, that's not how it works, okay? I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe you live next door to Pollyanna and you believe that. I don't live next door to her. I kind of live in the real world. And, and trust me, everybody else knows what's going on too, okay? Don't, don't try to take this moral high ground. Oh, we're not doing, sure. Okay, if you want to believe that and deceive yourself, that's your, that's your prerogative, that's your prerogative. But we understand that this is exactly what happens when people join themselves in a cohabiting situation. The temptation is just too high. I'm not even saying I'm better than you. I couldn't, I, I don't think anybody in this room could put themselves in that situation and survive. It'd be very difficult to survive. The temptation is too high, especially with someone um, that you might be attracted to. And so that's the problem with cohabitation. Now, when we talk about judgment, you know, for the believer, the judgment of eternal death, the lake of fire, I mean, that's off the table. Jesus Christ paid that penalty. That penalty has been paid for, nothing remaining for you to be paid. So we're not talking about that kind of judgment, but we are talking about consequences. We're talking about natural consequences. Galatians 6, 7, when you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. Out of wedlock pregnancies, abusive relationships, spiritual consequences, loss of fellowship with the Lord, loss of fellowship with other believers, loss of reward, loss of testimony. Sin always produces death. Sin always has a consequence. This is where this goes in terms of pursuing um, cohabitation. A few other just comments as we go along. Let's move through these quickly. You know, another thing not to do, don't cross the steps of physical intimacy too quickly. A snowball once pushed downhill becomes very difficult to stop. You know what that means? Is after a while, holding hands isn't going to give you the butterflies it once did. You're going to take notch that up a notch. Then that's not going to last. And then you're going to notch it up a notch. And then that's not going to last. And then you're going to notch it up. And before long, you push yourself into areas that you never desired to go, but you got there a step at a time. And so you want to just be very careful not to cross those steps and stages of physical intimacy too quickly. I mentioned this earlier. Don't, don't even consider marrying an unbeliever. Don't even let the idea cross your mind. Don't <clears throat> even consider marrying a carnal Christian, somebody that has no interest in walking with the Lord. At least find someone that has that desire. Because if you don't, you're, you're basically saying, I'm going to marry someone who's basically dominated by sin the majority of the time, and I'm okay with that. And I would just encourage you, read Galatians 5, 19 through 21, and tell me if you're okay with that. If you're okay with all of that manifesting itself in your marriage over the course of the rest of your life, okay, you must be sadomasochistic. You must love pain. You must love misery. You must love to, to, to be hurting all the time. You must love to cry and, and be by yourself. And if that's you, then I guess go for it. 
But for the rest of the normal people in the room, do we really want that kind of a relationship? And that's kind of what we're talking about. Number five, don't compound mistakes. You know, there's this sentence, if getting pregnant before you get married, oh, well, then we got to automatically marry that person. No, don't compound the mistakes. You know, the great thing about uh, if, if, there, if we can take a positive and spin a positive, the great things about out-of-wedlock pregnancy is there's a baby. That's a new life. That's, that's a blessing from God, right? And we can always stand firm. That is a blessing from God. That's a new life. But you know what that, the, the mom needs more than just rushing into marriage with a guy who's going to either abuse her or be carnal or, or uh, just walk according to flesh the rest of their life. She needs to walk with the Lord. She needs to learn how to walk with the Lord. That child needs to have a mom that's spiritual, that can love that child and discipline and raise that child with the fear and admonition of the Lord. So don't compound mistakes uh, as we talk about pursuing a spouse. Don't be pressured into doing things that you're not comfortable doing. You know, many times you'll get into a relationship and the person that you're dating will push you to do things that violate your conscience. Red flag, red flag, drop them like a rock if somebody's doing that to you. Or drop them like it's hot, depending on which generation you're from. Drop them. I'm serious. If someone is pushing you to do something that violates to your conscience, that you've told them, that violates my conscience, have nothing to do with them. Drop them quickly and be okay with that. That is not the type of person that you want to be with. 1 Timothy 1.18 tells us when you do that, you have the potential to shipwreck your faith. It can destroy your relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's never worth it. If you have a commitment that you want to abstain from from intimacy until you're married and you've got a partner that's pushing you toward that, drop them. Drop them. Drop them quickly. The other thing is, you know, some people get dating and they have this one person complex. And it's like, I mean, I get it. You, you like them a lot. I, you love them. You may be pursuing them to marriage, but they should never become the center of your world. That position is always reserved for Jesus Christ. Always. Because the second that person becomes the center of your world, guess what you are setting yourself up with? Disappointment, frustration, because guess what? They are not your savior. They are not perfect. They are going to screw up. And so if you've got them up on this center stage pedestal, that means you've taken Jesus Christ off of there. And let me tell you something about Jesus Christ. He'll never disappoint you. He'll, he'll never let you down. He will always be there for you. Not, not him, not her. I mean, it's great that you like them, but just keep into perspective. Your primary relationship is always to Jesus Christ. And then they, they would be second if they became your spouse. But this is what's happened so many times in dating relationships. You see young people interested in spiritual things. Then they find somebody and then they drop out of ministry. They drop out of anything that remotely looks like the one another's. Looking around on how they might serve others. Because now, you know, it's like the sign. I only have eyes for you. But it's not a good thing when it comes to ministry. When it comes to what God wants to accomplish in your life. The other thing is, is if this person is encouraging you to destroy other relationships in your life, run. A, a person who is interested in you should promote healthy relationships in all of your relations. They, they shouldn't be trying to take you away from your family, isolate you from your family, paint a picture that your family really doesn't have your best interest at heart. But I do, sweetie. 
I'm the only one in the world that has your best. No, stay away from those kind of people. That is a danger and it's a red flag. They should want all of your relationships healthy and flourishing. So next week, we're going to continue to look at this concept of spouse hunting, but we're going to look at some really specific characteristics that we want to look at. We'll be kind of working our way uh, through Proverbs to do that. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for just, just the instruction that you provide us in your word. And Lord, may you teach each one of our hearts what it means to walk by means of the Spirit. And those that are single in this room, that they might be able to recognize those who show interest in them that are really interested in pursuing you and those who are just pretending. Help them to know the difference. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.